What's up, Fish Sauce family? It's Elton. And Wilson. And we're back with a fresh episode of Fish Sauce. Join us on a journey into the minds of successful founders, operators, and investors. As we learn more about their secret sauce, we hope you find yours too. As we mentioned in our season two opener, this season is all about growth. And this episode, we want to share one of our core values, hustle and humble. What this means is being able to create something with limited resources. We were able to do so by leading on our closest relationships and communities. Like most startups, we have to prioritize ruthlessly and choose one goal or one metric to grow. We believe that having Facebook presence was critical. So we decided to invite all our friends and family to like our page first. And we wanted to grow that until 1,000 followers. And we were so fortunate when we got to it. Then we moved towards building the Instagram community and the Twitter community and eventually iTunes reviews, which we were able to grow to 75 reviews, five out of five. So let's keep that streak going. Review the podcast if you haven't yet. Woohoo! None of these growth metrics could have been possible without our fish sauce family value, hustle and humble. So thank you to everyone listening who has given us support, likes, follows, reviews, subscribes, and shares thus far. We'll be continuing to grow all these metrics, but now we're prioritizing the growth of our fish sauce family newsletter. So if you're on your phone or on your desktop, throw your email in and we promise to send you only the good stuff. Let's introduce this week's episode. This episode features an amazing investor, NBC Elizabeth Yin, co-founder and partner at The Hustle Fund. Launched this past summer, in their own words, The Hustle Fund invests in hilariously early hustlers, hoping to level the playing field in a world where pedigree does not guarantee success. Prior to starting The Hustle Fund, Elizabeth was a partner at 500 Startups, where she ran the seed program and managed a team of investors and mentors. As a first-generation Asian-American, Elizabeth's story epitomizes our fish sauce family value of hustle and humble, and it's not just because of her name of her fund. We learned that before her successes, Elizabeth had many failures, which were actually triggers to some of her biggest success stories yet. For the hookup, we got introduced to Elizabeth through Bebe Chue, one of our guests from this past summer's Female Founders series. So if you haven't listened to the series, definitely rewind it back to the Female Founders too. Thank you, Bebe, for the intro. We're quickly realizing that our fish sauce family is getting bigger and bigger through every episode, and we're so fortunate to keep being connected to our larger community. What's Elizabeth's secret sauce? Stay tuned to find out. Mm, can't wait. You had an amazing career from studying electrical engineering at Stanford to getting an MBA at MIT, and then co-founding a couple startups, and then finally joining 500 Startups to starting another fund of your own. Can you describe to us the decision-making process you've had to where you are today? You know, I have to say that a lot of it is actually accidental. <laughs> and actually, I think that that's probably the best way to go about your career. Just kind of whatever pops up, just jump into interesting opportunities, even if it's not something that you had thought about. So actually, an example is when I was graduating from college, this was in 2004, and with an EE degree, like at that time, actually, it wasn't it wasn't really the worst time to get a job, but it was still pretty bad. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do afterwards. Frankly speaking, actually, it was totally serendipitous. I was looking into business schools at that time as a senior in college. And I was looking into schools on the East Coast. But I didn't want to pay for my flight to Boston. So what I did was I entered a contest where the prize was a flight to Boston. So I entered that contest. I won the contest. And actually, this contest was put on by the largest job fair for jobs in Japan. And so they flew me to Boston. I visited my schools, but I had zero interest in going to the job fair, but I had to anyway in order to get reimbursement for my ticket. And when I went to their job fair to get my reimbursement, I actually ended up getting a job. 
And I didn't get into any business school, but I got a job from that job fair for for a job in Tokyo. And so the next wow. year, I ended up flying to Tokyo to take that job. So that that's how I ended up there, and I had never planned to work in Japan. So you you always have wanted to go to business school, right? Because after the job, you obviously went to MIT.、Um, at what pivot point did you make that decision to go? Well, the funny thing is, the next year I got to Tokyo, and about a month into the job, my boss pulled me aside and said, "This isn't working out." So I was like, "Oh my god, am I getting fired from my first job out of school?" What was the job? The job was actually doing sort of customer service in Japanese for a software product. Do you speak Japanese? So I studied Japanese、oh. for ten years, but my Japanese was not good enough by any means to be doing this job, and that's why they said this was not working out. They just felt like my language skills were too poor. I can get around in Tokyo just fine, but working at this job was not working out. And you know, I completely agreed. Actually, I was quite surprised. That I had even gotten to that point, to be honest. Nonetheless, they said they were actually quite nice about it. They said, actually, you can stay at the company, but you just cannot be on the front lines of customers. So we're going to move you into marketing. So that's actually how I got into marketing because they needed me not to be on the front lines of their customers. So I couldn't be in customer support or sales. And they said we actually don't have budget for you to stay that long. So you should probably start thinking about you know what you might like to do a year from now. So that's how I actually ended up. Reapplying to business school, and this time I only had time to apply to one school. The school that I had liked best when I had visited schools was MIT Sloan. It was small on the East Coast, fit my personality. I'd never been to the East Coast really before, so that's what I picked. Sent in my application. It was essentially the same questions and answers since I didn't have much time. <laughs> But this time I got in. So there's a lot of luck and. The funny thing here is, like, I failed to get into business school, so I got this job. Failed to keep the job, so I got into business school. <laughs> so, what age did you go to business school? Were you twenty three? Pretty early. Yeah, so I was twenty three. Are you、I、glad、entered. that you went to business school this early, or are you wondering like what would happen if you went to business school a few years down the road and had more work experience, so you can learn in the classroom and apply it with your classmates? Yeah, that's a good question. It's actually something I haven't really thought about ever. I mean, because I I can't really live in that parallel universe of what if I had gone later. I mean, I think from, certainly from a return on investment perspective, it was very good. Like you know, I had a measly salary at twenty three and then got the bump up like by twenty five. From a work experience perspective, yeah, I don't know. It's really hard to say. So you studied engineering, but. Didn't ever actually practice engineering in the real world. Is that right? Yeah, that pretty much is it. What was the decision behind that? A lot of people study engineering, spend a couple years in engineering, and then try to pivot into something business related. I think going back to just falling into things accidentally. I, I don't think I really had a cognizant plan of either being in engineering or not being in engineering. Is just sort of what ended up happening. I think certainly for my first job, even though I wasn't. Building anything, it was actually important to have good knowledge of electrical engineering. Like in this particular case, when I was doing marketing for my employer in Japan, like they—I mean, we were basically selling a multimeter、uh, product. So competing with folks like Agilent, and you know, we were selling to the big electronics companies in Tokyo, and their interests in buying products were not like it's not like selling a consumer product where they care about the colors or the style, like they care about the specs, like can this fit whatever application I'm doing, or will this solve my particular engineering problem? And you do need to have knowledge of that. It's easier if you have a 
a background in that, or you could learn it separately. So after business school, you spent some time at Google and then went to 500. What was that thought process like? Was it all luck again or another decision-making process? Yeah, kind of luck. To be honest, actually, uh, Google was the only company that I really looked at because frankly, I was actually thinking about starting a company right out of business school. That had always sort of been an interest of mine. I grew up in the Silicon Valley and you know, I'd always wanted to start a company and I thought that that's something I would do right out of Sloan. But frankly, I really didn't have any great ideas. Like we were trying a number of things, but it was like nothing really seemed like a promising business. So Google seemed like, well, just shy of that actually seemed like a really cool place to work. And, you know, everybody I worked with at Google was super smart, but I left Google fairly quickly. Like I, I made it to about a year and a month. Google was was a very big place and I felt like I really did just need to scratch my itch of starting a company and so I, you know, I left Google shortly after that. So, you just recently left 500 startups and uh, this past summer I interned at a VC fund, a startup VC fund and now you're currently starting a VC fund. And I'm curious what led to the thought process of starting a fund and what's your thesis behind it? What areas are you going to focus on? Yeah, so I have a new fund now, and it's called Hustle Fund. And it's actually based on my learnings from being at 500 Startups uh, as an investor. I was at 500 Startups for almost three years. Initially, I went to 500 Startups mostly to mentor companies. I actually hadn't really thought about being a VC, but gradually while I was there, I started seeing more investment-related issues and got more and more sucked in, and I realized huh, you know, instead of starting a new product company, maybe there is actually a lot of problems that I could solve by starting a fund. So with Hustle Fund, we're, we're doing a couple of things. Like the first is, this is a very early stage fund. I would call it a pre-seed fund. And by pre-seed, I mean, it's a couple of founders. So not a very big team at all. And maybe you just launched your product. But we're not necessarily looking for loads of traction. I think these days a lot of investors in the seed stage are looking for lots of traction. Certainly when I was at 500 Startups, like it was not uncommon for companies to come into the accelerator with over a million dollars run rate. And that's just incredible, right? That's not that early. And so I think there's this void. And with Hustle Fund, that's the first thing we're trying to address. I think the second thing from a mission perspective that I'm really excited about is You know, in venture capital, especially amongst early stage uh, investors, everybody says it's so important to invest in great teams. The problem is nobody can actually articulate what that means. And I think in many cases, a proxy that investors use for it is pedigree, like where you went to school, what company you worked at, et cetera, et cetera. And this, you know, a lot of investors will call that pattern matching. But the problem is, you know, I have now seen... I think while I was at 500 Startups, I looked at over 20,000 deals. So I've seen a lot of teams. Uh, we've also done a number of investments, have done investments in teams with pedigree, without pedigree, kind of like just all over the board. And frankly speaking, while there are a lot of teams with pedigree who do well, there are also a lot of teams with pedigree who don't do well. And the reverse is also true. 500 Startups in particular, to their credit, was a real champion for investing in companies, a lot of companies without pedigree. And there are a lot of those kinds of companies who have done well. And so we were thinking about this and my business partner, Eric Bond and I, and we were trying to see if, could we flip the model? A great team, in our opinion, is a team that iterates and executes fast. 
That is the definition of a great team. And so instead of trying to ask people questions to discern that, why don't we just actually work with them for a little bit to see if they actually execute fast and iterate fast? So our model for Hustle Fund is essentially to write a really small check very quickly, like in the, you know, in the name of hustling in lots of different teams and then start working with them like side by side, helping companies with their customer acquisition for a few weeks and then we may decide to cut like a much bigger check if a team is hustling really fast. So are you saying that like the vetting process is working with them side by side first? How is that process scalable and what does that process actually look like? So we plan to cut checks really, small checks really quickly, about 25,000 or so. And then at that point, we'll start working with teams. In terms of how this scales, actually, it scales pretty well. Like at 500 Startups, which is a program, this fund is not a program, but at 500 Startups, you know, we were investing in and coaching a lot of teams. In fact, at a given time, um, there were even a couple of batches where I was coaching seven teams at any given time. In this particular model, with the number of deals that we plan on doing over the next few years, it will be far fewer than that. But the type of coaching that we're talking about is about an hour a week for each of the companies. And it's only for the first few weeks to help them actually get some structure around their customer acquisition. Uh, Eric and I see our biggest value add is taking some chaos and putting a lot of structure around it. So that way teams can really just move very quickly. I love the name. The Thank hustle. You. I'm wearing a hustle shirt <laughs> as we speak, coincidentally. And then at WeWork, we use the hustle term all the time. So I'm a big fan. When you were talking, I was kind of thinking about us as a young team and co-founders and things like that. When you guys are looking at specific co-founders, what are you trying to measure in terms of the dynamic of co-founders and what works and what blends? So interestingly, you know, I've looked at a lot of companies and I like to meet both or all the co-founders, if you will. And usually I like to meet them when they're there together because you can really see the dynamics. Just even in how people answer questions together, or rather one person answers a question, you can kind of just gauge the reaction on the other person's face. It really does tell you a lot. Like if there are some... If there is some underlying tension going on with the team, you can you can see it in in that conversation really quickly. And so that's something that I'll just stay completely away from. But I mean, that is actually a top reason for why things fall apart in a company. It's not because people run out of money and it's not because, you know, the product isn't working or whatever. That's what a lot of people se- seem to think. But it's about morale. And if there isn't great morale within the co-founding team, like right out of the gates, then you're not going to get very far because you can't weather all those storms around running out of money and product. You mentioned earlier that you've been wanting to start a business for a while. And so I'm curious, what's the difference between starting a traditional business and starting a fine? Are there a lot of overlapping skill set that is required to starting a fine in a business? And what's different about it? Yeah, that's a great question. So starting a fund is actually very akin to starting a business. I mean, the business essentially is investing money as opposed to a product or consulting or whatever. So it it's not like I'm sitting in a cushy chair on Sand Hill. <laughs> Certainly, you know, that's the image that a lot of people have and, and maybe what happens at some of the large established firms. But when you're starting a fund, I don't know if you've read any of the articles that other new emerging fund managers have written, but some people have you know, raised money over the course of two years. And and the fundraising process is very similar to raising money for a product company. All that said, I'd say one fundamental difference between the two, though, is that 
With a product company, I actually think the hardest part about fundraising is that you have to balance running the company and growth of that company while also fundraising. And this is challenging, especially for the CEO who is typically doing both the customer acquisition for the company as well as the fundraising. It's just really difficult to do both jobs and you can't let that growth slip. Otherwise, investors will not like that. But if you raise money for a fund, you're typically not, I mean, you're not shipping a product. So you typically don't have other responsibilities. You're doing one thing at a time. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And in that regard, it's then easier to focus. We're going to switch gears a little bit. We're curious to hear what your experience was at 500 Startups. We know this past summer, there's a lot of news that kind of was shared <laughs> and being a woman in the space, if there was a similar situation that happened with one of our listeners, um, where they're kind of in the environment, but not really a victim in the environment, et cetera, how would one act? What are the steps that you would say to them? Yeah, that's a good question. It's interesting. We were just talking about this before the show, and I felt like we're entering new territory as an industry where, and I think it's good. It's a good thing. You know, this summer we saw a lot of victims step forward. We saw a lot of, you know, news around sexual harassment and sexual assault. And so I think it's good that many of these stories are coming to light. Uh, The tricky thing is, you know, let's take somebody in my shoes where you're not the victim, you're not the harasser, and you are also not the management where you have either the ability to be privy to knowledge or ability to make decisions to impact the situation. And that was a situation that I was in. And I felt like I wish there were an HBS case study on this, but they're just there just aren't case studies and there aren't a lot of people who had that kind of guidance to give you now. So I actually felt kind of stuck, to be honest. And in thinking about it over the summer, I mean, I think that, frankly speaking, a couple of things. Like one, at least for me, you know, so somebody at 500 Startups confided in me and what I wish I had done faster in retrospect was encourage her to go to HR immediately. And I think that, you know, it took me a while to process and and actually encourage her to do that. It took like that time span was a couple of weeks. And I think that that should be a gut reaction that everybody has. Like if somebody comes to you and confides something in you, like you should have an immediate reaction to push them towards that, even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah, why did it take so long? Why did it take weeks or much longer than you expected? Yeah, uh, the main thing is that you know the victim was scared, and it actually took her a long time to even confide in me, and so she really did not want to, you know, even take a step forward in com- telling other people. And I wanted to be respectful of that. And, but that's exactly the role that a third party needs to play, like the, to be the encourager. The third party shouldn't defer to the wishes of the victim because that's the natural instinct to want to just hide. But these things do need to come to light. They do need to be resolved and rectified. And the third party needs to be the one to to be the encourager and the supporter on that. And I think that's hard because, you know, like I said, that was not my natural reaction. I don't know if either of you read the excerpt out of Ellen Powell's new book, mm-hmm. but when Trey confided in her about her situation, she also told her, don't go to HR. And then later wrote in her excerpt that she regretted doing that. And and I totally understand that mentality now, having been in the situation, like you want to protect the victim, 
by not putting her in a difficult situation. But the reality is, unfortunately, these things are difficult. And the, the best outcome is by moving forward, even if it's uncomfortable in the short term. How can the industry or internal processes change so that it's not that uncomfortable? Is HR very helpful? Or what, what are some of the hesitations that um, the victim or the bystander have? So the other part of the problem is HR is designed to protect the company. It's not designed to protect you as the employee. So there definitely are risks here. Like in, you know, in the case where let's say the victim is the employee, yeah, there is personal risk because HR is not designed to protect you. That being said, you know, I I recently read about this and I forgot where I read this now, but um You know, I read that a good next step for victims is actually to approach an employment lawyer as well in parallel. And I I think that that's also a good step in addition to reporting to HR because you need to know like what your best options are. In some cases, HR may be on your side, but they also may not be on your side depending on how things play out. Did you already decide to leave 500 Startups before the series of events happened, or was that a catalyst in leaving and starting your own fund? Yeah, to be fair, I'd been thinking about starting this fund for a while, well before any of this, before I knew about any of this or any of this exploded. I actually told both Dave and Christine at the end of last year that I would be leaving, and I wanted to give them enough of a heads up so they could find my replacement. My original timeline was towards the end of this calendar year. I had never intended to depart in this manner, this this public manner either. But now that I have, I've decided, okay, well, I may as well just start this fund. Uh, well, switching gears a little bit, we want to rewind back to the early, early days. We want to hear more about your upbringing. Can you tell us about your community, where you grew up in, what's your ethnicity? So I grew up here in the Silicon Valley in the 90s. I grew up in Mountain View. I'm the daughter of immigrants. My dad is Chinese. My mom is Burmese. I grew up here in the Bay Area. I was born in San Francisco. And neither of my parents are engineers. Uh, well, they're retired now, but they, they were not engineers. They were not in the tech business or industry of any sort. But just by being here, like in the 90s and growing up here, that has had the biggest impact on my career. So actually, sort of interesting story, when I was a freshman in high school, my best friend Jennifer said to me, hey, you know, my cousin is starting uh, an internet company. Do you want to help him out over winter break? And I didn't have anything going on. So I said, sure, you know, I can spend a couple of days. And we came up here to San Francisco. We rode the Caltrain up here and we got to her cousin's office and it was it was an amazing experience. Like we were not helpful, but it was an amazing experience. We you know, I think we built them some chairs and tables. We put together some Ethernet cables by scratch. I don't know if you've ever done this. No, it's I a haven't tedious actually. Tedious process. Uh, and uh, and then we put together some intranet sites for them. But nonetheless it was incredibly eye-opening and inspiring. Here was her cousin, Tony, and he was hanging out with all his friends and they were just building stuff and they were doing sales and they were just doing everything. And it was amazing. And they could eat all the pizza they wanted. So I was like, oh, this is the dream. Like I, this is what I want to do when I grew up. And fast forward a few years. So I, at that time I was, you know, I was a freshman in high school. So I wasn't really thinking very deeply about this. Like, how do you make money on this? I, that was not something that crossed my mind. And I didn't really think about whether this was a good idea or a bad idea, but fast forward 
Actually, Tony ended up doing really well. He sold his company, which was Link Exchange, to Microsoft for, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars or so. The same person, Tony, uh, is actually the CEO of Zappos today. He's oh, Tony Shea. Tony so, Shea. Yeah. <laughs> this was well before I knew that, you know, any of that could happen. So this was like, you know, just during the very raw days, like when it was kind of a, you know, crappy little office and everybody was eating leftover pizza, but it was like, that was the dream. That's what I wanted to do. So what part of the story energizes you? Is it the financial return part? Is it the building the office from scratch, doing everything with your hands? The latter for sure. Like, and not the financial return part. I didn't know that that was even possible for years. Like I was really excited that week that we were doing that. And it was mostly this idea of like, wow, you could build something with your friends and it's not in a you know really formal stuffy setting where you have to go to work in you know fancy clothes and and their office and the way they were like they were very casual and I thought that camaraderie was what I wanted and to be able to build something from scratch is amazing and like I said my parents were not in this so my perception of what the working world was like was you know at least before was very buttoned up and kind of stuffy and and just very different I think from building stuff at, with your friends at school. Yeah. How do your parents view startups? Do they think they're super risky? Do they highly encourage you to do so? Are they proud of what you've done so far? <laughs> so I have a tiger mom like many other people. And, you know, even to this day, she still asks me why I left Google. <laughs> so oh, my mom asked the same question to my brother. So if this is I'm going to be um, on area, my brother left Google. And she asked the same question, like, you know, what's your next move? Like, you know, Google's such a great company. How can you leave such a you know great company? I've been telling my friends that you work at Google. What do I tell them now? Exactly. <laughs> no, that's exactly it. Because, you know, of course, um, well, like I, I had my startup, which didn't have a brand name by any means, and certainly not a household name. It was B2B. So, you know, she couldn't tell her friends about that. And and then the same thing now, you know, my fund is, is very small, and I don't even think she knows what a fund is. So I would say that, you know, my parents have always been extremely supportive of what I do, but that is not what they would want me to do. How did you convince them that your path was okay? Ultimately, it really just comes down to because I'm an adult and I you know, they, they don't run my life that, uh, you know, to a good extent, it's like, well, okay, that's what she's going to do. Hopefully she can survive. <laughs> I think that's sort of the attitude. So we heard you re- recently had a baby. So congratulations. I did. Thank you. And in the tech world, things oftentimes move very fast. And I think a lot of people who are just starting new families wonder how do they balance work and life together? What advice do you have for those who are trying to figure out work-life balance? You know, I think it is it is challenging. Like it's another thing that you add to your plate. And mm-hmm. certainly for anybody in tech, like the tech industry is very busy. And I would say that, you know, first and foremost for me, I'm extremely grateful to family. And that includes my parents, like my parents, my husband, his parents, my aunt and uncle. Like you, it really does take a village and... It's specifically like for, so I have two kids and for both of them, when they were first born, you know, all of these people basically were childcare and really helpful, like for the first several months. And I think that's huge because it allows you to sleep. It allows you to shower. It allows you to, you know, work it, it, you know, it, it was incredible. And I think actually in both cases, like for my older daughter, I had her while I was running my startup 
as the CEO of that company, you can try to take some time off, but certainly you can't have the same cushy maternity leave that you could at a larger tech company, at least at the stature that we were. And so I definitely needed that help and it was incredible. It's so funny when you were describing uh, starting a family and having your kids, it sounds like starting a st- another startup. It sounds like you have two startups happening at the same time. Well, there there is in some sense. I mean, I'd say on the plus side though, that I think that I have learned to actually really prioritize a lot better actually now that I have kids like before you know you could always prioritize like things are always busy and you always have stuff to fill your time with but with kids like it's very clear to me okay I'm definitely not going to do this because you know I cannot like I could procrastinate on going to the gym but I cannot procrastinate on feeding my child for example you know so it does actually really force you to pick your activities very carefully. And I think that that is a huge plus, even though, you know, aside from all the other benefits of having kids and and all that, like actually from a time management perspective, that has been huge. Is there one value or one trait that you've learned in your upbringing that's kind of, you know, continued throughout your whole life? I think for, like for so many immigrants, like just grit and tenacity is really what it's all about. You know, I don't think I'm the smartest person around but I think, you know, if you just keep at it, hustle, and there you go, like hustle, hustle. things will start to fall your way, even if they don't initially. Is that the same trade that you look at for, from entrepreneurs that you invest in? Definitely. When I was at 500 startups, you know, and to 500's credit, actually, we invest in a lot of companies where we really took a chance on the founders. The founders didn't come from pedigree, so a lot of investors would pass. Or they were in a space that was not sexy, so a lot of investors would pass. We took a bet on a lot of those founders, and a lot of those founders really just through eating glass like every day, even though no one else would give them money, like just powered through, grew their companies until it got to a point where it was like really big and investors were really interested in throwing money at it. And that's the kind of founder that I really want to back. Looking back at your career, it seems like things really worked out well, or luck really worked out well as well. If there's one thing you would have changed in the past, what would it be? Well, so actually, I would push back on that. I mean, you know, when you submit your resume to places, you just put all the positive things that happen. But an interesting exercise is to write down all the negative things that have happened in your career, too. Like, I'd say that a lot of the positive things that have happened are because of the negative things, kind of like what we talked about, like how I ended up in Japan or in business school. It's a two-sided coin. Like, had I actually been successful at that job, I probably wouldn't have got either gotten in or gone to business school. I mean, you could also say the same for other things, too. You know, when a company gets acquired, it isn't necessarily a good thing. I mean, everybody reads TechCrunch is like, oh, wow, they got acquired for this, and that's great. But when you actually think about it, if it were going so phenomenally well, the team would just keep going. Like, you'd grow it even bigger to the next level, right? So, so there is something that makes you sell, but it sounds good. For me, actually, the early lesson on with my job in Japan and business school was that failure and success are actually very tightly, you know, knitted together. And and that's really, I think, what everybody should keep in their minds. Like, as you go through all these troughs, especially if you're starting a business, it's going to be a lot of downs. But there are going to, I mean, it's only it can only go up from here at some point, right? It can't just keep going down forever. So for one of our last questions we wanted to ask in fine fish sauce fashion is, what is your secret sauce? What is that secret sauce that's made Elizabethan, you know, today from your early upbringings all the way now? Yeah, I think it really is uh, two things like grit and tenacity is one. And then the other is just 
not actually planning too far in advance, like just following where your path takes you. Um, interesting opportunities pop up all the time and they may take you in a direction you had never planned for or thought about, but maybe very interesting. And I think that actually is how my career has come about entirely. And then literally, what is your secret sauce? What is the sauce you like most to eat? <laughs> oh, gosh. I have to say, unfortunately, it's not fish sauce. Oh, that's <laughs> disappointing. No, I'm just kidding. Everyone's got their secret sauce, or just, you know, sauce they love. So. Uh, we actually do love fish sauce, yeah. though. I think this week alone, we've eaten, like, almost every meal. Yeah. Every, fish sauce in every, every single, meal? Yeah, every single day, for sure. Oh, every day. Yeah. <laughs> So what is that sauce? Did you already say it? No, no. no. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go mainstream and I'll go sriracha. Sriracha? Yeah. Spicy is good. You got to go with the spicy sauce. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fish Sauce. If you like what you heard, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and sign up for our newsletter for the latest updates and special surprises. Also, treat yourself and a friend to a Fish Sauce t-shirt from our swag store, fishsaucepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you rocking on the streets. If our mission resonates with you, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share with your friends so we can welcome them into our Fish Sauce family. And lastly, big shout out to our awesome editor, Christian Edwards, for making us sound better than we actually are in each episode of Fish Sauce. What's What's your your secret secret sauce? sauce?